worrier, there's lots of things to be concerned about these days. Pandemic, inflation, wars. But chances are a few of these events will impact you severely or maybe at all. But corona mass ejection has occurred in the past and it will happen again. So stop worrying and get prepared. I'm Robert Colangelo. Welcome to GreenSense. My guest this week is Geza Juk, Director of Astronomy at the Adler Planetarium. And we're going to talk about the sun and its impact on the Earth and its climate. Geza, welcome to GreenSense. So nice to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. The Adler Planetarium is part of the Lakeshore Museum Complex for those that are not from Chicago, along with the Field Museum and Natural History, the Shedd Aquarium, and these three institutions really help to make Chicago great. And I've been going to the Adler Planetarium since I was a kid. What a wonderful place to inspire awe and nurture scientific curiosity. You're very lucky to work there. What's your biggest joy? My biggest joy, I think, is just interacting with our visitors. I just love it when I have a chance to talk with visitors one-on-one and just get them curious, excited about something. Just sort of show that uh, why would somebody spend their lifetime interested in these questions and sort of pass on some of my excitement to them. And I bet it must be wonderful seeing the kids. They're just awe-inspired when they sit in that round room and they uh, see, see the uh, show of the cosmos. Uh, share some experiences you've had with the kids. Oh, with kids, just ask the the best questions because they they don't know what's wrong. You know, they they just know what they're curious about, and that's really how science is driven. Uh, they'll ask questions that you know are right at the forefront. You know, they'll ask, "Well, how did the universe come to be?" Well, good question. I'd love to know. When you figure <laughs> it out, let me know. Uh, you know, I can tell them a bit about how you know and some of the things, but really, sort of figure out how do you boil things down so that you're really getting at the essence, which is what a kid really wants to know. But hey, adults ask good questions too. So it's not (laughs) just because you're older than 18 doesn't mean you're over the hill. Yes. Well, you're an astronomer and your research is focused on the sun. Uh, How did you end up working at the Adler Planetarium and not in some remote location viewing faraway astrological bodies without the interference of urban light? Well, most observing these days that astronomers do uh, is is remote. We use a telescope that's you know far far from uh, the the world, you know, some far far from the sort of the modern world, you know, on a mountaintop somewhere or something like that. And uh, we used to frequently just go there, but now you know they don't really want to let absent-minded astronomers like me actually move the telescope. So you usually have a telescope observer and observing technician actually controls the telescope and so hey you might as well stay at home uh, and you know, issue the commands from there uh I, I find it a little bit sad that i no longer get to go to the mountaintop as much uh but but on the other hand it's really convenient uh, yeah so. uh, technology has made life easier for all of us um the edler planetarium does have a telescope doesn't it we do we have the Adon observatory in the back uh, we have the largest telescope in the chicagoland area uh it's a 24 inch uh, you know, more than half a meter across. Uh, we still get great views and great observations. Uh, we can still see deep sky objects, even though there's the light pollution. It's not as great. I mean, obviously, if we put this thing out way beyond Chicago's lights, uh, we'd get a better view. But we do the best we can. And what's what's great about this is that people can actually come to it, and come there and put their eye to the eyepiece and, and see with their own eyes things that are millions and hundreds of millions of years old but light has been traveling towards them all, all that time until eventually just at that second boom it reflects into their eye oh 
Well, I imagine you're very popular with the uh, web tele uh, telescope these days. Uh, it's probably uh, increased awareness out there and made people more interesting in astronomy. Thoughts oh, yeah. on that? That, that, that's fantastic. I mean, uh, NASA is always good at doing PR and getting people interested. Uh, but these telescopes like the Hubble and the Webb are just really extra special because they, uh, there were a number of interviews that, uh, that, I, that I did, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago when, when uh, images were first released. And they would always ask, well, what do you think of these from a scientific perspective? And I'd say, oh, forget the science. They're just beautiful. <laughs> yes, the science is great, but they're also just at a very visceral level. Uh, they're, they're beautiful things, and they're beautiful both aesthetically and also from knowing where they're going to lead in terms of our knowledge. Well, tell us about the kind of solar research that you focus on. Well, so I'm interested not directly in the sun, uh, but I'm interested in things uh, like, well, things go around the sun. I'm interested in asteroids, of course. I've, been, I've done a little bit of work in what, looking at the solar wind and how that interacts with uh, the atmospheres of planets, in particular, uh, you know, whether or not it'll strip away uh, the atmospheres of planets, like what happened with Mars. So that's the major uh, work that I've done that's sort of connected uh, with the sun. A little bit of interest also in, uh, in, in solar flares. They produce x-rays and some of them can produce even higher energy gamma rays. Uh, and I've been involved in uh, gamma ray observatories. Those were mostly for looking at things beyond the sun. Well, that's what we want to focus on is corona mass injections. Those are electromagnetic plasma bursts that emanate from the sun. For non-astronomers, tell us what they are in easy to understand language and how they are formed. Okay, so uh, a coronal mass ejection is when you have uh, a large amount of material, like billions of tons of material lofted off of the surface of the- That's large. Moon. Yes, <laughs> very small compared to the sun itself, but very large compared to you know anything that we're familiar with. And it's lofted off the surface of the uh, sun uh, with, by, by magnetic fields. So magnetic fields are an important part of, uh, of the sun's surface. Now, most of the energy, I and mean, the vast majority, is just the sunlight coming out. Uh, but that boiling sort of seething layer of plasma creates these intensely uh, sort of almost knotted up uh, magnetic strands. And that produces things like sunspots, areas where the heat of the sun doesn't reach the surface as easily. And so the surface gets a little cooler, little spots. Well, I say little, but they can be as big as the earth or even larger, uh, where, the, where the sun is, uh, is cooler. Uh, and so th there's, th there's a whole sort of solar cycle where the magnetic sun gets more and more knotted up uh, and you get more and more activity, more sunspots, and then it goes down again. But so these, th th these, these knots can sometimes sort of resolve themselves and untie themselves. And in that process, it can sometimes produce what's known as a prominence, where there's sort of the streamer that lifts itself up off of the sun and lifts some of the plasma, some of the hot material. And that lifting also uh, sometimes can be, you know, much more violent and actually throw stuff off the uh, sun, sort of eruptive prominences. And that's uh, a coronal mass ejection. Uh, and for those that don't understand, what is plasma? Plasma is a, a somewhat of an obscure object to right. most of us. <laughs> so plasma is, a, is sort of a, a fourth state of matter. We've got 
a solid liquid gas, and basically that's as you heat up material, first it's a solid, it's sort of the molecules and atoms aren't moving around very much. And then when you have a liquid, they're moving around, but they sort of, you know, they can't expand to fill any space. You know, a liquid has, can change shape, but it can't change volume. And then finally, a gas is when you heat it up even more and the, the molecules are, you know, bouncing around and sort of, however, if you keep heating up, a gas, eventually the molecules are bouncing around so hard that when they hit each other, they break some of the electrons off, they ionize, and that produces a plasma. An example on, uh, in sort of everyday life would be fire. Fire, like sort of glowing hot, uh, is, is a plasma. Well, thank you for that easy to under understand explanation. I don't know if I could repeat it, but I understood it, so thank you. Uh, what impact can uh, corona mass ejection have on Earth, uh, specifically to our weather and to the electric grid? So a corona mass ejection, so most of them are ejected out and they just sort of go flying around in any old direction uh, from the sun. So they miss the Earth. And so that's, you know, it's sort of interesting, cool, exciting, uh, but not, not doesn't have any effect. But if a corona mass ejection goes towards the Earth, plasma interacts with magnetic fields. That's what lifted it off the surface of the sun in the first place. And so it basically hits, uh, if a corona mass ejection is going towards the Earth and it hits the Earth's magnetic field, it can bend and warp it. So imagine the magnetic fields sort of coming out of the north side of the Earth and coming uh, back into the south. And then it gets hit by this big ball of plasma and the whole thing just shakes and rings and, uh, and you know, warps around. That can have effects. So the most obvious thing is if you've got a compass on Earth, it's going to change uh, directions. And so that sometimes they're referred to as geomagnetic storms when this happens, when, when a CME uh, hits, hits the, Earth's, the Earth. But there's more things that happen. The, geomagne uh, the, the magnetic field of the Earth also sort of stores up some of the solar wind. Uh, some of the particles from the sun, the electrons and things like that are trapped. And when it gets shaken... A lot of those magnetic field, a lot of the charged particles, those electrons and so forth, fall down to the earth, especially in the polar regions, and those produce auroras. And normally, you'll have a few electrons falling into in the earth's atmosphere towards the poles you know, every day, every night, and you'll get auroras. I mean, those are relatively standard. But when you've got a big geomagnetic storm from a CME, the CME impact, the auroras can spread down as far south as Florida. Uh, you know, that's, that's pretty rare. That doesn't happen very frequently, but it can, that can happen. So, uh, so those are sort of the, the beautiful things. <laughs> you know? Well, let's talk about some of the non-beautiful things. And in 1859, uh, a geomagnetic storm hit, and it's known as the Carrington event. And it impacted Earth uh, quite uh, uh, negatively. Talk a little bit about those things. Absolutely. So the Carrington event was the most in intense geomagnetic storm that we have in recorded history uh, that we sort of have, you know, direct records of. Uh, and its effect, I mean, so... First of all, you had all those, you know, the, you know, the compasses went haywire. You had auroras as far south as Florida. Some people said they could read newspapers by the, uh, by the auroras, uh, you know, in Chicago. And, and just incredible displays in the skies. But it also affected things like telegraphs. So a telegraph has a long wire stretching across, you know, well, continent scale, right? 
And when a magnetic field sort of pushes past a wire, the lines, a magnetic field lines push past a wire, it'll create currents in that wire. And that's how dynamos work. That's how, you know, frankly, we produce most of our electric power uh, these days. And you have you know, generators. Uh, but in this case, what happens is you produce these currents running along the wires. And in fact, in the case of lithographs, uh, sparks would arc, uh, you know, between, between, you know, so if you have a, the telegraph key, what it's doing is it's, uh, it's interrupting uh, the link between the wire and sort of the return wire. Well, if you put a huge voltage into that, suddenly you've got arcing, in some cases, it infused and welded uh, the key shut. Uh, and some of the uh, telegraph operators were shocked. Uh, they were just, you know, it was, you couldn't even use uh, the telegraphs in some way. Other cases, they shut down the power system and it's, the telegraph still worked. <laughs> so there were all sorts of things. But I guess luckily is that there wasn't a whole lot of technology back in 1859. You know, electricity was sort of just barely getting started to be used. Uh, and if a similar thing would happen nowadays, but we have a lot more lines going across, uh, you know, electric lines going across continent scales, uh, the, the power grid. And so if such a thing happened, again, then you would expect to have huge currents being sort of shunted through the power uh, system, very high voltages, and you could do a tremendous amount of damage. Uh, there was one uh, study which suggested that the amount of damage due to the Carrington event. Uh, this was back in, I think, let's see, 2013, the study was. Uh, Lloyds of London, along with some other folks, uh, did this study. They found somewhere between half and $2 trillion worth of damage in the U.S. alone. That's significant. Uh, <laughs> how often do these magnetic storms occur uh, to a point where we should be concerned about them? Well, there was actually one in 1989, much less than the Carrington event, but it was still enough to shut down the uh, parts of the Quebec power grid uh, for something like half a day. Uh, so pretty significant. Uh, we also have, uh, there were other strong flares. We've seen uh, flares on the associated uh, CME uh, that have been at least as strong as the Carrington event, but they miss the earth. <laughs> so we know they happen. Uh, back in, uh, in 774 AD, uh, there is there's a, there's a record in the ice cores and in the uh, and the tree cores uh, the so the carbon isotopes that suggest that there was a CME uh, and geomagnetic storm probably about twenty times stronger than the Carrington event and that wasn't that long ago that was you know a little more than a thousand years ago but twenty times stronger and even a you know, Carrington event scale one would just be I, it's it's difficult to recover if you lo- lose your electricity across the entire country. Entire, across the entire globe. <laughs> yes. So that uh, begs a question. Does NASA or other government agencies have sensors in place to monitor and detect geomagnetic storms? We do indeed, actually. <laughs> There's quite a lot of uh, study. In fact, one of sort of NASA's sort of missionaries is, is, uh, is, is, is looking at you know, the heliosphere uh, because they, they take this very seriously, the heliophysics uh, missions. Uh, so there's uh, missions that are looking at the solar wind. There's uh, missions that are sort of just 
looking at the solar surface, there's stereo that looks from two different directions. So we can build up a three-dimensional picture of it. We've got the Parker Solar Probe that was just recently launched, which is going to swoop closer than any other, uh, any other space probe to the sun, looking at some of the close details. We've got the Solar Dynamics Observer, uh, which is, again, looking at many wavelengths at the same time. Solar Orbiter. We've got SOHO. Uh, so we actually have a lot of eyes on the sun. And so well, that's, that's, a good good. that's the good news. Now, how much advanced warning do we have with the current monitoring systems that are in place? <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> we can see the events that are happening on the sun with a delay of about eight minutes, because that's the amount of time that, that light takes. Luckily, the CME itself takes uh, considerably longer. A CME, roughly speaking, travels at about 1,000 kilometers per second. Uh, roughly speaking, uh, light travels at 300,000 kilometers per second. So it's, you know, vastly outstrips. But so roughly speaking, uh, you know, you've got about, you know, a couple of days warning from when you see something happening. But of course, you know, you have to watch it develop too. And from the, we have, we have satellites which can actually detect the, uh, the charged particles in the CME. And those, Give us a few. Will give us a few hours warning of uh, you know of the actual front, but we'll we'll know you know a day or so in advance that wait a second we ought to start getting worried about this. Uh, in that case, well, there are some things we can do. Well, and that's the that's what we want to end up on here is uh, now that we know CMEs occur regularly and they can vary in degree of severity and they can impact the earth, what can we do to be proactive and protect against this next major burst? Well, so there's a number of things. Uh, first thing is uh, satellite operations. So satellites are sort of above a lot of the protective limits of the, uh, of the atmosphere uh, and magnetic field. And so satellite operators take this very seriously and they've figured out ways essentially to shut their satellites down, uh, you know, and, and put them into safer orbits. Uh, at short notice. And so the hope is that we wouldn't lose too many satellites, even with really major uh, CME. The other thing is, of course, the power grid. And what we would probably have to do there is segment the power grid so we no longer have all of the sort of continent scale connections, and then break, uh, break the connections between the power grid and sort of really significant equipment, like some of the uh, the uh, the, the largest power control electronics and the uh, and the uh, there's a particular class of, of uh, voltage control controllers uh, and transformers that are very expensive and very difficult to get. They don't make them very quickly, and so if those get burned out, then it's six months just to replace them. And so <laughs> we want to protect this. And there's there's there the the utilities have taken it quite seriously. And I've been pushed on by regulatory agencies. And so uh, we, ha we have the mechanisms in place uh, in which to separate those out, assuming they're triggered and, uh, and the utilities don't say, well, can't we just push it a little longer? Because, you know, we're going to give a blackout to you know, our customers if we, if we separate these. Uh, so so that's, that's, that's good news on that side. Another thing that can, of course, be done is that things like, uh, well, if you've got a home solar system, <laughs> You know, you'll have power even afterwards. Uh, so that's that 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 that's uh, distributing uh, distribution. You know, distributing uh, generation 
is is actually turns out there's a there's a nice side of benefit that you're a little bit more robust to things like Carrington Limit. Do you feel the utilities are adequately prepared and have a good uh, preparedness plan to put in place when they've got that short notice that we have a burst? It's always difficult uh, to know uh, because if you ask the utilities, they say, oh, yes, 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 you know, uh, everything is fine. But, you know, utilities have a vested interest in, in saying that, uh, that, that everything is good and, you know, they don't need to be monitored more. Uh, we're certainly in a lot better situation uh, than we were in 1989 uh, when the when this sort of Quebec blackout occurred. Uh, it's it's anyone's guess, you know, if there's a if, it, if there's a particularly fast fast uh, CME that hits us uh, more quickly, or the, uh, the there's there's damage that can happen even if they can disconnect. Uh, sort of the, the prime resources. From so the- self-reliance and having your own individual plan sounds like a good idea out there. It, it could be. I'm, so I'm not going to say any become a proper, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, you could imagine, uh, even in the best case scenario, where they have to sort of shut down the whole grid because there's a really major CME coming towards us. Uh, getting back online will take a little while because, you know, there are some things which are physical interconnects that they have to uh put back on and then resynchronizing the grid. Uh, there's a number of things. Uh, so you could be looking at blackouts, even in the best case scenarios, uh, you know, across the whole country uh, for, for a day and then other places coming online slowly after that. Uh, well, so. chance favors the prepared mind. So it's always good to have a plan in place. Uh, and I think one of the problems in society now, people have uh, become relied, reliant on other people. We have to start relying on ourselves a little more to take, uh, take control. So one last question I want to ask you that is uh, uh, often neglected when we talk about climate change is that there's a consensus amongst uh, climate scientists that climate change and global warming is mainly from human activities. You know, we know from fossil fuels, creating greenhouse gases that get trapped and warm the atmosphere. But a part of climate change is always attributed to externalities. And that, in general, is just means the impact from the cosmos, the planets, the sun. So what I wanted uh, to get your opinion on as an astronomer, what impact do externalities have on the Earth's climate? Is it a big impact, a little impact? And then when it comes to externalities, what's the biggest source of the impact? Is it the sun, the moon, other planetary bodies? Right. You never hear this talked about very much in now that okay. we have our own astronomer here, shed some light uh, on it. Absolutely. Okay, so we know that uh, these external effects have an impact on the climate. Uh, we know that there's cycles in the climate, uh, sort of these long-term Milankovitch cycles, for example, uh, where there are sort of variations in the orbit of the Earth and the tilt of the Earth, and those things uh, make a difference. Uh, you know, and, and it's believed that those are associated with, uh, with ice ages, uh, so you know, major climate changes. So the orbit of the Earth is, is probably the, uh, the, the most major of those effects. Now, of course, those take place, those variations take place over the tens of thousands of years timescale or even longer. Uh, the sun also has some effects. Uh, we know that there are some, uh, some effects to the sun. There seems to be some correlation. Uh, but those typically, again, are on the timescale of thousands of years, uh, and the solar cycle, for example, is, is, has been shown not to particularly be correlated with climate. Uh, 
Uh, so we have fairly long uh, records on those uh, and you know global climate and uh, and solar and the solar cycle and that does not seem to be particularly correlated. Uh, things like CMEs, these sort of you know, big massive events, those tend to only have you know short-term effects on parts of the atmosphere. For example, CMEs will, will produce radio blackouts uh, and, uh, and conversely, <laughs> better long-range radio uh, bouncing off the atmosphere. Uh, some, we, some folks did a study of the, uh, seven, uh, the 774 uh, CME, the one that was found in the, in the, in the ice cores and the, and the, and, the, and the radiocarbon sampling. And they found that basically there was maybe a year when there was a minor influence, um, primarily on the amount of ozone in the atmosphere. Uh, so the direct, there isn't a strong direct connection there, but probably these, these orbital uh, changes, these long-term orbital changes that we understand uh, are, the, are the largest external effects. Those won't explain what's happening currently because right now <laughs> you see changes on the time scale of you know, decades, uh, you know, which correlates really, really well with the carbon releases and the isotopic ratios of carbon. There's all sorts of things, but they, uh, but they definitely do uh, exist. Uh, we have seen other traces where we have uh, evidence that there was a large release of carbon dioxide in, uh, in the earth. You know, we look at samples and air bubbles in ice cores, and that correlates with the temperature change as well. Uh, so we're pretty confident of that. Uh, so and I don't know summary, that's... Can I say that the externalities have uh, minor impacts or more of global, large global trends, uh, but uh, really uh, climate change can pretty much be attributed to man-made activities. I think that's fair to say. Uh, over very long periods, it's, uh, the externalities are not necessarily minor. You do get ice ages that are perhaps driven by the, the Milankovitch cycles, but you know those don't happen overnight. Right. Those, those take thousands of years to develop. Hi, Geza. I really enjoyed talking to you on uh, the show today, and we appreciate you joining us. We'll have to have you back. This is such a vast topic. We just scratched the surface here. So uh, thank you very much for being on GreenSense. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. That's Geza Juke, Director of Astronomy at the Adler Planetarium, talking to us about the sun and its impact on the Earth. GreenSense is an independent radio show that relies on support from sponsors and patrons like you to produce high-quality audio broadcasts that promote innovators with sustainable solutions. Visit the GreenSenseFarms.com website to learn more. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to GreenSense. And catch the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 WBBM Chicago.